Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. How many hours do you spend in front of a screen? Zoom, WebEx, Microsoft Teams, they dominate many workplaces today. But long before the pandemic, communication at work had shifted to emails, apps like Slack, even text messages. But did any of us learn how to communicate online? Today, where we live, we talk about digital body language, and we want to hear from you. Does thanks, period, translate differently to you than thanks, exclamation point, exclamation point? Do emojis belong in a work email? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us on Zoom is Erica Dewan, author of Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here, Lucy. When we were thinking about doing this show, we were talking about how so much of our lives is online, but we really haven't learned the skills. We've just been adapting as we go along. So it's interesting to think about a guidebook for all of us on how to communicate online. So Erica, this should be a really interesting hour, but I wanted to learn a little bit about you personally. When we think about digital body language, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is how we pick up cues when we're in person. And so when did you start noticing body language? Lucy, I grew up as a shy and introverted girl in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My parents were Indian immigrants, which meant that at home we spoke Hindi. So at school, I had accented English and often really struggled to find my voice and got teased. I remember because I was so shy, I developed an ability to really decipher and observe others through their body language. I would study how the popular girls had their heads high, their shoulders back. The cool kids were slouching during school assemblies. And it really taught me as an immigrant myself that it's not just what we say, it's about how we say it. At home, I would watch Bollywood movies, not knowing Hindi very well, but studying the actors and actresses' faces and knowing exactly what the storyline was. Fast forward 30 years, I became an expert on body language and communication. But about five years ago, I started to see the same questions from leaders, team members, Why is there so much misunderstanding at work? How do we better connect with different ages and working styles? And what I realized was that there was no rule book for the body of our language in a digital world. Just like I was an immigrant to traditional body language as a kid today, we are all immigrants to the world of digital body language. That's an interesting perspective. I know my parents used to watch Bollywood movies too, but I never could get into them, <laughs> Erica. <laughs> but you said that you heard from uh, people uh, that are in companies about uh, you know struggling with um, online communication. So can you talk a little bit further about that? What clients told you about what they noticed about team members and how they communicated? I'll give you an example from one of my clients. He sent a message to his boss, Tom, that said, Do you want to speak on Wednesday or Thursday? 
And Tom's response was, yes. Now, this is just an example where I like to say reading messages carefully is the new listening and writing clearly is the new empathy. I ran a study of about 2,000 office workers as I researched for my book, Digital Body Language, and found that the average employee is wasting up to four hours per week on poor, unclear, and confusing digital communication. In our virtual messages, we are not always tone deaf, we are tone deaf, and we have to take the time to bring a sense of nuance and emotional connection back to our messages. So going back to the the one word response, we've all gotten those emails before. Do you think that people do that because we are just inundated with emails all day and other messages and that's in our in our own way we think well if we're brief and to the point that we can you know get through our inboxes is that part of the problem like just figuring out time management one of the biggest challenges we face in digital communication different from traditional face-to-face communication is we feel rushed to respond. Sometimes we feel we're rewarded if we're the quickest to respond to an email, the first one to jump in on a Zoom call versus prioritizing thoughtfulness over hastiness. We all knew when we were in a face-to-face office, when someone was stroking their chin, we'd let them think a little because they were listening attentively. Or if someone was nodding and bobbing, we knew that they were engaged. Now in the digital world, if someone doesn't speak up on a Zoom call, we think, oh, are you on mute? Are you having tech issues? Are you multitasking? And one of the things that I've learned is that especially brevity can create a lot of confusion. We have to take the time to slow down, write better messages. We also have to take the time to remember that awkward silence can actually be okay. Actually sending questions in advance, saying, I'd like everyone to think about this for a few minutes and then speak up can allow us to move from hastiness or groupthink to actual true thoughtfulness today. You're hearing author Erica Dewan here on Where We Live as we talk about digital body language, how all of us communicate online, especially at work, some of the do's and don'ts and how we can all become better communicators. If you have a question for Erica, you can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You mentioned tone. So let's talk more about tone, Erica. We've all gotten messages uh, like we need to talk with a period at the end or what does that mean in all caps with multiple question marks. And we may not always uh, feel the same when we read the tone of those messages. Uh, We need to talk period uh, in a text message for some can feel like a simple meeting request. For others, it can feel anxiety producing. Maybe I'm about to get fired. Uh, another one, what does this mean in all caps with multiple question marks? For some, this could be a bit friendly. For others, it could feel accusatory with those multiple question marks or like shouting with all caps. In today's world, tone can easily easily be misread. In fact, one study showed that we are likely to misinterpret the tone in emails up to 50% of the time. And it's equivalent for not only colleagues that we don't know well, but even with our families and friends. So when it comes to battling these challenges of tone in our digital messages, what I recognized is that we have to realize we are answering two other questions when we are reading tone of others and we are sending a tone in our messages. The first is who has more or less power here? If we have more power, it's easy for tone less messages to be misinterpreted. And if we have less power, being thoughtful in our tone to show respect can be very important. 
The second question is, how much do we trust each other? Are we longtime friends where an individual won't read into a brief message, they'll just think we're typing fast because we're busy? Uh, or is there low trust where someone could misread a brief, low context message as perhaps passive aggressiveness or frustration? I wanted to hone in on what you, that statistic you shared that we misinterpret half of our emails. That's not good. How do we ever get anything done, Erica? <laughs> In many ways, I, I like to say it's always about knowing when to use each digital channel and when to switch the channel. I like to say a phone call is worth a thousand emails and simply asking ourselves, are we using the right medium? Are we using the right tone? Is it clear what, what the other recipient needs from our message? If we don't take the time to be thoughtful about it, we can quickly rush and create a lot of misunderstanding. That's a good tip using the right medium. I wanted to get back to a question I asked earlier because Ellen from West Hartford, she called in, she couldn't stay on the phone, but we were talking about uh, short responses and work emails. Ellen writes, should people who write for a living be expected to provide better written exchanges than others? And she's concerned about inappropriately short responses in work emails. So how about answer the first question first? People who write for a living, are they expected to better provide written exchanges than others, Erica? In many ways, I've talked, I talked to many professional writers in my research for this book. And I found that many of them are appalled by the new digital body language culture. In fact, in 2015, the Oxford English Dictionary named the tears with joy emoji as the word of the year. Imagine how, how insulted maybe thoughtful writers were around that. I, I think when it comes to if you were a professional writer, um, remember that in today's world, we don't walk the talk, we don't talk the talk, we write the talk. And in many ways, our messages are not just about using the beauty of elements of style, which I'm a big fan of and was written years ago, but is also based on the fact that our messages are visual. People read emails like they read websites from top down. Do you have a, a clear to the point subject line? Did you use bold and underlined headings to get to the point quickly? Uh, are your text messages clear and also short enough where people actually want to read them? And if we reframe that, we are, we are not just writers today, we are visual writers we can actually understand that how much digital body language actually matters and that it's not just about the words we use, it's how we organize them on the page. We were talking about tone and when we heard you mention punctuation, I got a Facebook message from a listener uh, who wrote, I really hope you're going to talk about people who use multiple punctuation marks, particularly question marks after a statement in all caps. This person goes on to say, why does that drive me nuts? So you have a different opinion of punctuation. So uh, using exclamation. So can you explain that? I've studied question question marks uh, to start, and I, I think mm -hmm. that this, this is one of them that caused me in my life a lot of anxiety. So I'm so excited to talk about it today. In many ways, the question mark can signal interrogation. It can signal interest. It can also signal frustration. It's kind of like the equivalent of cocking our heads to one side or narrowing our eyes. Generally, my rule of thumb is one question mark is a simple question. But what if you have three question marks or maybe five question marks, multiple question marks, like a, are you at your desk with multiple question marks? For some can signal urgency or impatience and others it can signal panic. 
So if we think about that one, if your friend texts you, are you at your desk with one question mark, you may think nothing of it. They just want to come by and say hello. But if the text reads, are you at your desk with five question marks, your stomach might drop. You might start to get anxious. My general rule of thumb here is to not get emotionally hijacked. If you get multiple question marks from others, stay in the place of reason, assume good intent. Maybe it was more friendly than panic. And also be thoughtful of how you use question marks. One may mean an honest question. Two to three may mean confusion or frustration. If you get to four or five, this might be a bit more of anger and you may want to switch the virtual medium and pick up the phone. And what about uh, when we think about punctuation, the exclamation mark versus the period? What's appropriate, Erica? So in many ways, the exclamation mark has taken on an entire new form. And, in the, and, and it's a completely different form than the period. So let's start with the exclamation mark. I like to say the exclamation mark is the new signal of either urgency, excitement, or even shouting. And it often depends on the channel you use. Uh, in a text message, it may feel more like excitement and shouting. In an email, it may feel a bit more like urgency. One of the things that's interesting when it comes to exclamation marks is that they can be interpreted differently based on gender. In fact, research shows that when a woman uses multiple exclamation marks, it is more likely to be interpreted as a woman coming off as friendly or approachable or excited. When a man uses them, it's more likely to be interpreted as urgency or potentially shouting as well if there's a high power trust dynamic. So this is an example where, again, one quick exclamation mark may just be, mean basic enthusiasm, but if you get to four or five, some may read it as excitement, others may read it as anger. Now let's talk about periods, which is a whole other one. We all know that the period, uh, the end of a sentence used to literally just be the end of a sentence, but I'll share a story that will bring up how important it is to analyze your periods today. One CEO of a team, um, her name is Aria. She was engaging on the Slack channel of her team and she was responding to a quick question that her team members had asked her on the Slack channel. And she responded with an okay with a period at the end. She thought there was no problem, but later that day, her assistant messaged her and said that her colleagues found Aria's period at the end of her message absolutely chilling. So in today's world, actually, Periods at the end of certain channels like texts and other instant messaging tools for some can feel like anger and passive aggressiveness for others can just be good grammar. It often skews generationally those that grew up with instant messaging tools like AOL and uh, Facebook from when they were in high school often use uh, a period at the end to signal something different than the end of a sentence, whereas older generations may likely use them just to end a sentence. I'm so glad that you mentioned generational differences because, again, when we were prepping for this show, I use periods and my producers use exclamation. And I'm always thinking, are they annoyed that I'm asking this question? And then I'm thinking, now that I read your book, are they thinking that I'm being short with them because I'm using a period? <laughs> it's just so funny, Erica, to think about how we're all interpreting these things very differently. Exactly. Even the ellipses, the dot, dot, dot can be misinterpreted and older generations tend to use them differently than younger. A dot, dot, dot for those that may have grown up as digital natives can sometimes signal a whiff of sarcasm 
or even passive aggressiveness. But for an older generation, it can just be a casual, softer stop than a period. This is where we live. My guest today is Erica Dewan, author of Digital Body Language. Now, do you have questions about the right or wrong ways to communicate online in the workplace? Any horror stories or examples of good online communication that you and your team have? You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You mentioned emojis. Can we talk about emojis? I'm, I'm guilty of using many emojis, especially in Slack. Emojis are one of my favorite parts of the dialogue related to digital body language. We we love them or we hate them. It's usually one or the other. Think of emojis as really the range of our facial expressions in the world of digital body language. We can show happiness, sadness, anger, frustration, all of these different signals through a simple emoji. My general rule of thumb when it comes to using emojis is tailor your emoji use to your audience. If there's high trust and maybe a little or minimal power gap, don't hesitate to use an emoji. It can allow you actually to build a sense of trust and connection, especially when your written messages may feel a bit tone deaf. At the same time, if there's a high power gap, err on the side of formality or be thoughtful. I like to say think before you emoji. The other thing that's important is my research actually identified that emojis can be read differently depending on your gender as well. In fact, one study from a linguist showed that when younger women used multiple emojis in the workplace compared to a man at any rank level in that same workplace, the woman would be more likely to be seen as incompetent. The man would be more likely to be seen as casual or friendly. Now, I'm a big fan of breaking those biases, but also being thoughtful of digital body language bias similar to up-talking and voice pitch in our modern world. The other thing is remember that emojis can even be interpreted differently in different parts of the world. In fact, that thumbs up emoji that we often like to use, well, in Western nations, it signals agreement or approval. But in countries like Nigeria and Afghanistan, the thumbs up emoji is vulgar or offensive. It means to sit on it and it's not very nice. Good to know. Again, we're hearing from Erica Dewan, author of Digital Body Language, as we talk about how we all can become better communicators online. You can join our conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You also provide some examples, uh, maybe not necessarily in the workplace, but when you use emojis, they can actually get you into trouble. I think you're talking about a landlord. Yes, that's right. Uh, so, you know, if we think about emojis as just this simple punctuation mark, yes, it is. But we have to remember when is a smiley face just a smiley face and when is it something else entirely, perhaps even a binding future commitment. One story that I found in my research was about an Israeli landlord named Yaniv Dahan. He got a series of smiley texts from two prospective renters and he was convinced he had found the ideal tenants. They were positive, enthusiastic. They shared three emojis, a smiley face, a bottle of champagne, a couple waltzing, showcasing their interest in the apartment. And after a few more of these emojis, Dahan, the landlord, took the apartment off the market and waited for the couple to sign the lease. But then he waited and he waited and he waited and it became clear that those emojis meant nothing at all. He actually got ghosted. 
And unlike most people, Dahan actually refused to let it go. He appealed to the law by taking his emoji-loving tenants to small claims court where they were fined $2,200. The judge put it uh, very simply. He said the couple had acted in bad faith. So again, sending the wrong emoji can cost you, not just in miscommunication, but also potentially in cash. Now, you mentioned ghosting. Not everyone is familiar with that term. Uh, talk about that and you know, when is an appropriate uh, time frame to get back to people? One of the most common examples of anxiety-provoking digital body language is what I call slower no responses from individuals. When we were face-to-face in the office or in a you know personal gathering, it was normal that if you said hello to someone, they would say hello back. Uh, but in a digital world, you can just have the silent treatment and it can show up in delayed emails, texts, or what I call ghosting behavior, which is where you just simply don't reply at all. We've all felt that level of anxiety Um, when we're waiting to hear back from someone, when we have that uh, sense of a silent response. And when it comes to this, my general rule of thumb is to try to remember not to get emotionally hijacked. Uh, I define ghosting as that act of allowing texts and emails to go unanswered, especially when a follow-up was sent to no avail. We are all busy right now. We are all inundated with messages. So we have to give others the benefit of the doubt and also assume good intent. If you're waiting for a response and you feel you might be getting potentially ghosted, don't jump to conclusions. Uh, Remember that everyone has a lot on their plate. And I recommend if you follow up two to three times with no response, switch to a different medium if it's appropriate, if there's trust. A phone call, uh, you know, a quick text message, even a social media direct message, if it's appropriate, maybe not in the workplace, but in a, in a personal setting. And if you're on the other side, if you need to get back to someone, but you're really busy, but you want to get back to them, answer immediately and just say you got it, but you'll get back to them soon. Uh, and at the same time, if, you know, you can't respond quickly, give yourself some grace and block some time, maybe once a week or once a month to respond. And last but not least, If someone is just sending you too many messages, uh, it's okay to not respond. It's okay to set your own boundaries, but knowing when and when not to is important. The Where We Live team has been getting ghosted by the governor's office. We've been trying to get the governor (laughs) back on our show and uh, we've tried emails, text messages, even phone calls. So we'll keep trying, Erica. We'll switch up the medium and hopefully we'll- (laughs) Or Instagram DMs. I found that that is actually working for me. That's a good one. We'll try that. Again, you're hearing Erica Dewan, author of Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance. As we learn about online communication, we'd love to hear from you. Again, the number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Before the pandemic, much of the way we communicated at work had shifted online. Erica Dewan writes in her book, Digital Body Language, that 70% of all communication among teams is virtual. 70%. And the average person sends about 30 emails a day, but fields three times that amount. How effective is all that online communication? Erica is my guest today as we talk about the ways we can learn to better understand each other in this virtual world. We were talking about emails earlier in the show, Erica, but I know there are five phrases that people may not realize are passive aggressive. Can you go through those with us? Absolutely. We all know what the feeling was of getting a passive aggressive message, uh, whether it was anxiety provoking or caused you to react in maybe a negative way. Uh, I want to introduce you to five key uh, messages where you may actually be being ambiguous, but others may interpret it as passive aggressiveness. The first one is per my last email. Now, for some, that's just how they write and what they learned in business school. But for others, it can be misread as, you didn't really read what I wrote, pay attention next time. (laughs) Another one is for future reference. Now again, this could just be something you've always used or that you mirror from another colleague. But for others, especially when there's a high trust gap, others may read it as, let me correct your blatant mistake. The third one is bumping this to the top of your inbox. Uh, We've all seen that before, sent it or read it. Uh, Again, it it could just be a friendly reminder, but for others, it could be interpreted as, you're my boss and this is the third time I've asked you, you need to get this done. Uh, The fourth one is just to be sure we're on the same page. (laughs) We've all heard and seen that one before. Uh, When it comes to reading into passive aggressiveness in that phrase, I I like to say it's often read as, I'm gonna cover myself here and make sure I can always refer to this email if you do something wrong. And last but not least, the the fifth one that I have to be honest, uh, I'm guilty of using this one, but I am conscious even more than ever that it can be read passive aggressively is going forward. For some, that's just a quick reminder for others. It's a do not ever do that again. Those are the five most common passive aggressive feelings behind common phrases. You can join us, 888-720-9677, if you have questions about effective ways to communicate at work online. When I was listening to you talk about those five phrases, I think to the fact that many managers use that kind of language. And so in your experience working with different companies, are managers receptive to learning that these messages are passive aggressive and there's better ways to communicate, Erica? One of the things I think is so important to have a conversation around, especially with managers, is that their power levels 
impact how their teams read their messages. Again, if, if someone writes per my last email and they're a colleague or even a junior report, it may not be read the same way as it was coming from a boss. So when it comes to managers, I, I recommend that managers always truly think before they type, understand that brevity can create confusion and their power levels can often cause others to misinterpret their messages. I'll never forget a leader of a team who sent a no subject calendar invitation to her teammate for a meeting the next morning. Her teammate thought he was about to get fired. He didn't sleep all night because there was no subject line, but she didn't realize that her lack of context created confusion. Another example is a leader of a team who was giving feedback on a Zoom call and said something of the like of, let's iterate on this topic a bit more. What she really meant was, let's add two more bullet points. Her team comes back with 10 new slides, probably spent 40 hours on it. Uh, but in many ways, imagine how demotivated they felt when it turned into two bullet points again. These are just some examples, uh, but for all managers, I think remembering that your messages can be misinterpreted, that you should really focus on being ultra clear and also knowing when to switch the channel is incredibly important. So when there are these instances of miscommunication and there might be hurt feelings, again, we're not seeing a lot of our coworkers these days. It's mostly on you know Zoom or, or uh, chatting on Slack. And so how do you recommend that coworkers reach out and, and deal with those hurt feelings, Erica? I think the first step, even before you know that there's hurt feelings, is don't assume others are okay if they're just not responding to you. If you send a message off, we, we don't have those cues. Uh, you know, when we were face-to-face, -face, we knew if someone was on the verge of tears and how to react versus extremely excited or happy. And, and I think that in many ways, what was implicit in our traditional body language has to be explicit in our digital body language now. Truly asking our teams, how are you feeling about the work? How are you, how are you feeling about how we're working together? What does success look like? For you what's been a win of this week what's been a challenge for you this week is there anything i can do to support you uh, even just letting people know they did a great job uh you know in the past a team member would stay up all night and uh you know give the leader the the deliverable in the morning and the leader would smile and show their gratitude in their face now uh, that team member may get a K period or a THX period email from, from that uh, leader and, and not feel that same sense of respect, acknowledgement, and thoughtfulness. And so, again, remembering to show radical recognition, to be careful, are, again, not just simple things, not table stakes. They are requirements in our marketplace today. You mentioned that the abbreviated thanks doesn't come across very well. And so what are some other ways to show respect and gratitude online, Erica? I'm a big culprit. I've used the THX emails intended to communicate, you know, I really appreciate your hard work, but they are usually just interpreted as dismissive, uh, you know, an acknowledgement that someone got my, e that I got someone's email. When it comes to radically recognizing others, be creative, but also be authentic. I've seen teams have appreciation awards, start a meeting by giving shout outs to other team members, having a specific uh, section of their meeting to give credit where it's due. I've seen town halls 
where they're acknowledging individuals that have been sources of hope and positivity through the pandemic. I've also seen, uh, you know, leaders send video messages to team members so that they can show their body cues visually to their team members of how much they appreciate work. Sometimes even just CCing your entire team on the work to a client, um, you know, when they did all the work but are usually excluded from it, giving credit where it's due are things that make people feel recognized. So remember that valuing others is visibly valuing them and what was implicit before has to be explicit today. Earlier, you talked about using different media uh, and when we're communicating certain messages. And so I'm wondering if you can walk us through, like, when is it appropriate to send an email versus a text message versus bringing something up on a video chat or even using uh, these apps that in workplaces today like Slack or phone call, Erica? Yes, I think one of the most powerful things we can do is set some norms around both the channels and formats of when we email Slack, text, phone call, video call, you name it. And I think I I would say that we don't always have to stick to the same communication medium for everything, but it's about the nuance of choosing the right one for the message. And what I do is I teach clients that there are three factors you have to think about when it comes to choosing the right channel. The first factor is length. The second factor is complexity. And the third factor is familiarity. So the first is length. Length is the easiest to manage. You know, if it's a short message, maybe it's a quick text message. If it's long, knowing when to send it in a lengthy email, or maybe it's nuanced, so you need to have a video call. But Send, send that email with bold and underlined headings. Get to the point very carefully. Remember that emails are visual. The second factor is complexity. Now, the general rule of thumb here is bigger, broader ideas re- require more nuanced engagement. So knowing when to err on the side of let's set up a video call to discuss this versus uh, you know throwing something at someone that is in an instant message may be very important to understand and know the nuances around. The third factor to think about when deciding the channel is familiarity. And familiarity refers not only to our relationship with the recipient, but also to the content of what we're saying. So thinking about who is your audience, is it is this someone you have a close relationship with, maybe calling out of the blue or sending a quick IM message is completely appropriate. But if it's a business relationship with someone you've never you've never met before, maybe you're working with their assistant to get on their calendar, actually being thoughtful about nuances like the subject line. Uh, did you get to the point quickly? Are you clear on why they need to join the meeting versus making them maybe defer on avoiding it or ghosting you are things that are incredibly important. One thing that I recommend managers do is just set some rules within your own team. When will we email and what are response time expectations? Maybe 24 hours and emails are for work requests. IMs are within business hours, maybe within one to three hours during business hours. But if you IM me in the evening, I'll get back to you the next day. And for video and phone calls, I think setting some rules, maybe calls should always um, be as shortest as possible. You know, maybe not 30 minutes and 60 minute meetings, but 20 minute and 40 minute meetings can be very effective. And, you know, setting some norms that if you want to have a meeting, have a clear agenda in advance. This will allow everyone to get on the same page and feel like they're valued for their time. 
Again, I'm speaking to author Erica Dewan about her new book, Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance. If you have a question or you want to share an observation from your workplace, 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to take a quick call. Fred in Collinsville. Fred, go ahead. Uh, yes, good uh, Good morning. Um, I'm probably a, uh, a generation or maybe even two or three older than you guys. So my first comment is to thank your guest for appreciating that there are generational differences here <laughs> because that's not always recognized. Uh, the second thing I wanted to say is I think a lot of people think that they're saving a lot of time with these super short um, comments THX or whatever, which, of course, I'm guilty of doing, too. But I don't think we really are saving all that much time, and I don't think it takes uh, very much to add just another couple of words of uh, courtesy and, um, for lack of a better term, I'm going to say social lubrication. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's my comment. Well, thank you, Fred, for that. Uh, Erica, did you want to respond? One of the things I studied um, in my research was that we not only not only is there one digital body language, there are different digital body languages. And while a digital native may interpret a THX period as um, very normal and effective, a digital adapter um, may look at that THX and feel like, why didn't you just pick up the phone if you really wanted to thank me? Uh, I, I think in many ways we have to remember that we have different digital body language styles and check our biases of others, not read into messages too much, assume good intent, and remember that we are not all the same. Similar to different regional dialects or cultural accents, we speak digital body language differently. Jason tweeted, I'm helplessly enthusiastic about things, and I use exclamation points and text messages to express that energy. It took my coworkers a little while to get adjusted. Again, you can join our conversation, the number 888-720-9677. You can tweet us or find us on Facebook at Where We Live. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, how should we view racism? Some state lawmakers say it's a public health crisis. On the next Where We Live, we'll talk with Senator Mary Doherty Abrams about why this declaration is needed. She's one of the leaders of the General Assembly's Public Health Committee, and you can join that conversation. That's tomorrow. Now today, my guest on Zoom, Erica Dewan, author of Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance, as we learn how we can learn to communicate better online. Let's talk more about video, Erica, because so much of, I know, at our company, has it's been dominated. Zoom dominates us. We actually call it Zom, <laughs> just to, to, to change it up a little. But our Zoom meetings, literally, you know, we've been doing this for, you know, more than a year now. I can I feel comfortable saying that they really haven't gotten better. We've just been doing them every day. And so I'm wondering if you can give some tips on when people are doing more video meetings, how to have more effective meetings. We all kind of thought that we could go from the office face-to-face -face meeting to Zoom meetings and it would work perfectly. 
but it actually is very different. I like to say when we are running Zoom meetings today, we are thinking a bit more, Lucy, like TV or radio show hosts. So in many ways, you may be perfectly primed to run Zoom meetings. We have to think like MCs, where we're planning and preparing for the meeting in advance, where we're calling on people in different segments to share their expertise and engage, and then really summarizing at the at the end what happened so that everyone is on the same page. My general rule of thumb, first and foremost, is to have less Zoom meetings and have better Zoom meetings. Uh, Zoom fatigue is at, as an, at an all-time high. It's not natural for us to be looking at our screens all day, let alone our own video of our own self on a screen while we're trying to look at other people. Before video meetings, I generally recommend always send an agenda in advance. If you have questions you want to pose, send them in advance of the meeting. This allows your introverts to actually have time to process ideas before jumping in in a meeting. At the beginning of the meeting, start with a few words to set the tone. If people don't know each other, do a quick round of introductions. Share what the agenda is. Let others know what success looks like at the end of the meeting. Let them know how they can engage in the meeting. Maybe say we're going to actively use the a chat tool to, to share, and then we'll call, call on people to share as well. And have a meeting note taker who can summarize the insights from the meeting and send it out within 30 minutes of the meeting. I like to say that's the new virtual handshake. It creates that alignment, as well as recording meetings. So if people couldn't join, they can get up to speed. Another thing that I've noticed that is really important is the level of groupthink that can happen in Zoom, or what I like to call Zoom think. Uh, so when we were in the office, we could read others' body language, the stroking of a chin, the furrowed brows. If someone was thinking, we knew when to call on someone. It's much harder to read those thumbnails. And so my general rule of thumb here is set some intention around this. Maybe if you pose questions, ask everyone to share in the chat first. This avoids not hearing from extroverts only and allows everyone to share. Then call on people that have the most diverse or different perspectives versus the usual people that are likely to share. Use breakout rooms when effective. And, and last but not least, always be thoughtful of accessibility issues. Uh, if there's different cultures, use Zoom closed captioning or other tools to make sure that everyone is on the same page. Remember that not everyone engages in the same way, but actually the power of, of calls like Zoom, even though they can be exhausting at first, can be very productive because you may even get more voices with the power of not only verbal communication, but written communication in the chat. Judy is calling in from Stanford. Judy, what did you want to share? Hi. Um, I am a little frustrated with hear, reading people, um, people's sentences, using, using exclamation points as enthusiasm when I experience it as yelling, as too much, uh, too emphatic. And I think we need a new punctuation mark to indicate enthusiasm, and we should go back to um, let the uh, exclamation point be yelling. <laughs> okay, Judy, I like that. So, Erica, what would you suggest? This, this, what's the new punctuation that might um, help uh, people like Judy in terms of showing excitement versus shouting? You know, I've seen the rise of GIFs and memes to often show enthusiasm, and, and even in Apple iPhones. There's lots of different gifts that are being used to show that level of enthusiasm. But Judy, what I'd recommend is remember that digital body language norms are changing and will evolve. You know, remember when 
it was acceptable to answer a voicemail within a week. Now, if you don't respond in a few days, people are nervous or, uh, you know, now it's normal to have an emoji in the workplace. And, and so I, I think that these norms will continually evolve. But one thing that you can do is let those that you have high trust with know that sometimes exclamation marks can feel like shouting to you uh, so that they may be more thoughtful in making sure it doesn't cause you alarm. I think uh, this all points to the fact that we need better training. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about that, Erica, how uh, companies and workplaces can set some standards on how we communicate virtually. In my book, Digital Body Language, I set out not only to talk about these challenges and the new, I'll call it the digital elements of style, but actually to give frame, a framework for workplaces, communities, schools, uh, you know, large corporations, on how they can create a culture of good digital body language. And I introduce four key categories that are things that you can assess yourself and your teams on. I actually have a mini assessment that attendees can take and also, uh, you know, that you can use to think about how to upgrade your own individual body language. The first law is valuing visibly. And valuing visibly is about creating a culture where we're valuing others' schedules, inboxes, and time. Uh, not just saying thank you, but really showing it and how we don't chronically cancel emails or, uh, or calendar invites, or we read emails carefully. The second law is to communicate carefully. And when it comes to this, I, I like to go back to what I said earlier, reading carefully is the new listening and writing clearly is the new empathy. The third law is what I call collaborate confidently. And confidence today is not just about having gregarious body language. It's simply saying what you'll do and doing what you'll say, following through on your commitments, not making others feel ghosted, not having others chase you down. And last but not least, uh, it's what I call trust totally which is uh, the fourth law of digital body language. And it's all about how we assume best intent, knowing that there are challenges of digital communication and how important it is to give others the benefit of the doubt and know when to switch the channel. So those are what I call the four laws. And leaders and workplaces can really immediately start to build these skills, have conversations, assess their teams, and when we do, I really hope we can create a movement around upgrading our skills in, in digital body language. I just want to point out, Erica, that you started writing this book before COVID. And now, you know, our lives have adapted so much in this pandemic. You know, I'm just curious, you know, some takeaways now that your book is out. And the fact that while many of us may be returning to work uh, later this summer or already are at work, you know, how we can all move forward on not only understanding that traditional body language is important, but these, this, these skills also matter to us as we talk online. One of the things that surprised me that I didn't expect, especially having a, you know, 100% digital shift in the last year, is I originally wrote digital body language to help as, you know, an addition to traditional body language. But now I've realized that physical and digital body language are inseparable and in fact 
our digital body language is changing our physical body language. In fact, after spending a year online, you know, I'm seeing teams coming together in hybrid work and we're more likely to look down at our phones multiple times, uh, missing the lean in or the eye contact. We're looking at video screens in the same room as we're looking at people, changing who we pay attention to and how we orient versus often just listening to those in a room. We also think more in bullet points. We want people to get to the point quickly because we've been reading bullet points and emails for a year. And so, again, I think we are in a new frontier. Digital body language is a skill that will continue to evolve. And what's, I think, most powerful is for all of us to be self-aware of our own signals and the impact it's having on others. I think that's really important to end on when to be self-aware, because even in Zoom meetings, you'll see coworkers that are muted and they're not really paying attention. You can see the, the flashes on their screen as they're working on other emails or responding to something. And it's like, that's a cue that you're picking up on, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I want to thank Erica Dewan, author of Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance. This is a really interesting read. I think I'm going to stick with my emojis still within our team, but now that we're all on the same page, I think that'll be okay. <laughs> Erica, thank you. Thank you so much. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Thanks to Matt Dwyer on the phones. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. And as always, we thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.